Hello, and welcome to the PCA Church Leader Podcast, brought to you by the PCA Retirement and Benefits. On this podcast, we talk with a number of church leaders, pastors, elders, women's ministry leaders, administrators, campus ministers, and more. We discuss practical issues church leaders face in the course of an average week. Sermon preparation, staff meetings, time management, money issues, hiring and firing, books they're reading, and much more. Thank you for being with us today, and here's your host, Ed Dunnington. Hello, everyone. Before we talk with today's guest, uh, if you would do me a favor, if you like this show, please be sure to subscribe to PCA Church Leader Podcast and leave us a review. We're always trying to find ways to improve the show, so please uh, leave a review there. That would be a huge help. We'd love to hear your thoughts and know how we can get better. With that in mind, let's get started. I'm excited to have uh, Richard Pratt with us today uh, on the podcast. Richard is the president of Third Mill Ministries, which is a ministry committed to providing biblical education for the world for free. Prior to becoming the president of Third Millennium Ministries, Richard served as a professor of Old Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary and is the author of countless books and articles, a number of those that, that many of you will probably be familiar with, uh, books like uh, Pray With Your Eyes Opened, Every Thought Captive, A Design for Dignity, and he gave us stories. Not to mention those, he also has a number of commentaries. Uh, Richard, it's great to have you here with us today. Thanks, Ed. I'm glad to be here. I'm excited to talk with you. Well, it's... Uh, it, you all don't know this, but but Richard and I share a little bit of history because uh, he's a, a a man from Roanoke, Virginia, and and I've spent some time there myself. So um, before we jump into talking about the ministry of Third Mill, Richard, uh, I'd love to for our listeners to just get to know you a little bit. So if you would tell us how you came to faith and then how you met your wife Georgia, right? Yeah, that's right, Georgia, or her nickname is Gina. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, I became a believer, a follower of Christ when I was 17. I had been raised in the Southern Baptist Church, as all people in Virginia are. Absolutely. And then I have, but I, um, in, when I was a junior in high school, it was during the Vietnam War, and it was a very intense time, and my day was coming very soon to be drafted mm. and the like. So life got serious in those days. And one of the things that was happening in around 1968, 69, was the Jesus movement, and a lot of people my age who came to Christ in, during the Jesus movement, and I did too. And it mm. was a wonderful, um, wonderful, very dramatic encounter with Christ that I had that transformed me and put me on a path that I have not left ever since. Well, and now you had a couple of dear friends that came to faith at the same time, didn't you? Oh, that, and you all- yeah, 25, 30 of them. And a lot of them are pastors or elders and deacons and some of them in the PCA, many of them, in fact, in the PCA, but also Baptists and Anglicans and other sorts of things, weirder things than that. Um, but yeah, there many of them are still very dear friends. I've got very gracious and kind friends from, the, from days past, and um, we've been very um, close, even though at geographical distance. Um, I met Gina, my wife, uh, in high school. And at the, um, the commune where I attended and often visited with the Jesus people. And uh, we became um, in, enamored with each other in those days. And then just uh, went off to Covenant College for a year together, unmarried. But then after that first year, came back to Roanoke and got married. So we've been married since we were 19 years old. So you spent a year at Covenant College. I did. Mm-hmm. How did you end up at Covenant College from a Southern Baptist family? And because I'm not thinking, were there many Jesus? Uh, no, there are not very many Jesus people that went to Covenant College. <laughs> what happened was my wife was attending 
an independent church in Roanoke, uh, not a Southern Baptist church, in other words, where a pastor that many of your listeners might know from the past, uh, Dr. Jack Arnold, where he was the pastor. And uh, Jack was the man who, as I often jokingly say, got me to pray to receive John Calvin into my heart. And um, when he did that, then my life began to change, and he sent us off to Covenant College for a year. Oh, wow. Yeah, Jack. Um, J- Jack's impact on the kingdom has been remarkable. Yeah, phenomenal. And and the 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 work that the Lord did, particularly through that that church, Grace Church, during those years, you and countless others that came through those doors. But then his time at, at RTS in Orlando as well. So, um, well, that's funny. Uh, that's so, and then so you all were at Covenant for a year, and then came back to Roanoke and was an intern in Jack's church. Okay. Then moved into the old RP. Reformed Presbyterian Church, RPCES, and then was swallowed up by the PCA. Yeah. So, uh, along with the rest of the RPCES, the rest of the RP Church. That's right. Well, now you've been you've been at Third Mill now for over two decades, but but you've been engaged in theological education for thirty five years, right? Since nineteen eighty five. Is that when you probably came? that's about right? Yeah, eighty five. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so one of my questions for you is, how have you seen theological education change over the course of that time? Over 35 years? I guess what I would say, uh, how have I seen theological change or theological education change? And I think my answer would be not enough. Hmm. What do you mean? Uh, well, we still tend in our schools, both our colleges and our seminaries, and even in lay people education, we still tend to do what we tended to do about 35 years ago. And there's not been a lot of creative. But Richard, uh, if it was good enough for me, then it's good enough for the, for the next. <laughs> Just like my old 1964 Volkswagen Beetle. And, um, and I say that not, not, I'm being a little, a bit glib, but not too much actually, because I think it's a serious, a serious matter. When you ask the question, how is theological education changed over the last 35 years in our circles, and I say not enough, what I mean by that is it's not enough in the sense, not in the sense that we want to change just for change sake. That's not what I'm saying, because there are many great traditions in the ways that we have raised up leaders, and I'm very traditional in most respects, though people often don't think I am. Uh, But if you scratch me twice, I'm very traditional, um, PCA through and through. And, um, but the fact is, is that the culture in which the PCA now ministers has changed a lot in 35 years. It's changed dramatically in 35 years. And seems to me that our goals for what we want church leaders to be, whether lay people or pastors or people on staff, whatever, our goals for what we want them to be, the kind of leaders we want them to be, while of course there are certain basic things that stay the same. We want them to know the scriptures. We want them to have solid reformed theology in their bones. We want those kinds of things. But the, but the rest of the list of what we want them to be has, um, and needs to change dramatically because our mm. culture around us has changed dramatically. So, so what would you say are some of the things that you see are, are opportunities for change that, right? I mean, because obviously when, when, you, when, when you say the statement, theological education hasn't changed enough, you and I both know that many at that point will say, well, so, you know, what, what are you wanting to throw yeah. out of our core convictions, which I know yeah. is not what you're saying. Yeah, the answer to that is nothing. 
Right. So but what we're really saying is um, how can we improve theological education to to better communicate those same convictions to to a new generation or the next generation um, that is is much more diverse uh, ethnically um, and and just come with with a a different um, factory uh, you know, um, start, you know, kind of restart, um, in a built in that, that they're more visual or, I mean, how are some of the ways that you see that we could change? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think, I think it would be fair to say that most of us would agree with this basic statement that if you want to be a faithful leader of the body of Christ as a pastor an associate, a lay elder, a deacon, a lay leader, a women's leader, whatever it may be. If you want to be a faithful servant of Christ, leading the body of Christ, then you've got to have first a certain body of knowledge. And I don't want to diminish that at all for any of those levels of leadership. In fact, someone just asked me recently at a Presbytery meeting, they said, um, well, what, what are you trying to get rid of in the theological curriculum? And my answer was, I think we settled a long time ago what we think we need, our pastors need to know about the Bible and sound theology. I think we settled that. And I think, why should you ever fool around with that? That's, that's perfectly fine. But what we've neglected, and this is ever so much more important now than it was, say, 50 years ago, is the ministry skills of our developing church leaders, the ministry skills that they have and the personal quality of their lives, the the quality of their personal lives, or shall we call it um, their spiritual walk with Christ. Um, And unfortunately, there's been a, here's one of the big significant changes that we're facing. And I think the next generation is is going to face this dramatically. Um, It it goes like this. And I was saying this to the Free Church of Scotland just last year, as a matter of fact, I said, it used to be that people would come to Christ. Let's say they'd come to Christ their first year, second year of university studies. And um, then they'd go on and they figure, well, I feel called to the ministry, so I'll go on to the theological college or I'll go to seminary, and that's where I'll learn my Bible and theology, and then I'll be ready for ministry. Well, that worked fairly well for several hundred years, as a matter of fact, um, since Mm -hmm. the Reformation, because those young men who were coming to Christ in their early years of university study had grown up in a very Christian society. Right. Now, most of them, in fact, grew up in Christian homes. And even right. if they weren't Christian in, full, in a full-blooded sense of that, that converted parents, at least their parents stuck together. Right. And the they residue of Christianity, right? right. The ghost of Christendom kind of right. still... And they, they acknowledge certain basic Christian moral stances, and uh, they practice discipline in their families, um, the fathers worked hard. The mothers worked hard. Uh, the children were to obey. Um, children were taught like like me. Like I was taught, although I grew up in a Christian home um, with rather nominal Baptist Christian parents, at public school, I was taught the Lord's Prayer. At public school, I had to memorize <laughs> the Christmas story out of the Gospel of Luke. Right. At public school, my textbooks all had the Lord's Prayer on the back and on the front of the textbook, on the cover that they provided us, was the Pledge of Allegiance. Okay, right. so I grew up in a highly Christianized culture in Southwest Virginia. And right. even though I wasn't a true believer in Christ, I knew 
that stealing was wrong. Right. I knew that it was not right to have anybody above God than God. I knew that coveting was wrong. I had been taught these things. Well, let's talk about the kind of person now. And I was the kind of person that went off to college, you know, right there at the end of my high school career, became a true believer, okay, and then went on. Well, I got the call to ministry, so now what do I do? I go to the theological college or the seminary, and I get my theology and Bible, academic stuff. I get the knowledge base. But the Bible, but the seminary that I went to, and I went to a couple of them, never really touched my ministry skills, and they never really touched my personal life in large part because that had been shaped, as it were, by my Christian upbringing. Right. So just going to church kind of made that happen. But today, over 50% of the students who come to seminary come from broken homes. Mm-hmm. A, gr- a high percentage, there's been no series on, no studies on these, but from anecdotally, I can tell you from my 20 years of teaching in seminary, a high percentage of them have been involved in drug abuse and alcohol right. abuse. Right. Um, a great many of them have been involved, deeply involved in pornography before they ever come to seminary. Right. And so they've grown up in a society where these things are perfectly acceptable. They've grown up in families that they've never seen a husband treat his wife anything close to what a Christian husband should do. They've never seen a family stay together. They've never seen anything close to some sort of 10 commandments are important for, for, for living son. Right. Okay. So they go off to the the university, become Christians. They get the call to ministry and they go off to theological college. That's still focusing on just the Mm, content, just the content and not the character. Uh, And they've never seen a pastor baptize someone. They've never seen a pastor put someone in the ground. They've never seen a pastor counsel a family that's having trouble. They've never seen these kinds of things. They don't know what a pastor is like at all, except for the few months in which they've been Christian. And so ministry skills, they don't have a clue what that would mean. What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself as a minister? They have not a clue. Nothing in their background shows them this. So it sounds like, I mean, in one sense, that part part of the, you know, the idea, certainly the last couple, last 20 years, seminaries have, have put a greater emphasis on field study, right? That's, yeah. um, which I think is part of an effort to, it's an to effort. address that, but it, it's, um, there's, it sounds like there's just so much more. Right. It's still, it's still in most schools, and I'm not going to name any schools right. at all, but in most schools, and especially in our circles, field education is more or less an afterthought. Right. You know, right. our denomination has internships that are required. But right. also, all too often, that, that means you're in the church on Thursday night making copies for the Friday night youth meeting. Right. Okay? <laughs> that's your internship. Well, thank you very much. Well, that's what I want to see is the theological education be a nightmare for theological students right. so that they have to be involved in evangelism of the worst and the hardest sorts, like mm. street evangelism. Right. Working with the poor working with different ethnic groups, different economic groups, uh, doing things that are literally physically dangerous to do Mm. as a follower of Christ because those ministry skills and then the personal spiritual development, that's the third part, which is hardly ever addressed in seminary. Right. Um, I I mean, ask yourself the question, when was the last time spouses were brought into the seminary, assuming that the student is a male, but it could go both ways, 
and the spouse is asked by someone and is quizzed about, well, what kind of person is your spouse at home, your student mm. spouse at home? When was the last time that happened? Well, that, right. didn't, that doesn't happen right. unless they're in trouble and they have to go to the counseling program at the seminary. Then now, that, now that's when those things get addressed. But those kinds of things need to be addressed through and through because right. the emphasis of the theological development of uh, church leaders today must go over into ministry skills and personal spiritual development in ways that we never had before because mm. they don't know what it means to be a father. They don't right. know what it means to be a mother. They don't know what it means to be a neighbor anymore. People don't, people don't live in neighborhoods anymore. They live in caves in suburban divisions. Right. And uh, so we just don't know these things. It's not a part of our culture anymore. And so we have to do that if we're going to have well-formed educators or, pardon me, leaders of the church. Now, now here's the question. Well, how can you do that? Well, one way to do that is to make seminary seven years long. <laughs> Good luck with that. Okay, can't do that. So just a so, little bit more debt for some of our people. That's that's right. Right. <laughs> Another way to do that is to cut back on how much content you teach the students. Well, we don't want to do that. Right. Okay, so what is Richard Pratt's answer? Find more effective and efficient ways to communicate the content so that mm. more time in the classroom can be spent with professors who are mentors and right. friends and older brothers who are leading students in ministry skills and personal spiritual development. That's the key, in my so, opinion. So it's interesting to hear you say that makes me realize, I mean, Third, third Mill is has has done a phenomenal job. I mean, I remember several years ago when I came down and visited you there and I'm always, I still can envision being on the campus at third mill and seeing the reach and, and hearing the stories of, of the folks that are using the materials in their own language. And, and we'll talk right. about that. But, um, but what I hear you really saying is, man, one of the biggest needs is, residential seminaries where where the the faculty view themselves as mentors and first and transfers of knowledge second i uh, yeah i would think so because um there's good scientific data to say to support what i'm about to say the old lecture style of of is one of the weakest ways to transfer information. And we know that because every, every seminary teacher knows that intuitively because they are always frustrated with how little they're able to do in their class lectures. Right. And so we've got to find more effective and more efficient ways of getting the information over to students who, by the way, have even greater deficit than ever before in Bible knowledge and theology knowledge. Right. Uh, we've got to find more effective and efficient means of doing that so we can free up time in the curriculum for someone, whether it's the professor in a residential setting or in a local church setting, the pastoral staff or in a, a city or a community where you have several pastors who get together and do this, who provide mentoring and spiritual guidance, um, who do challenge them in their family lives and challenge them in things like evangelism. I can tell you this, for 22 years or 23 years, I taught Old Testament in a, in a theological college or a theological seminary. And one of the complaints that students always brought to me was, 
they just hated one particular class that we had. Hated it. I mean, hated it. And I'm sure there were exceptions to this, but I never heard the exceptions. Do you know what class that was? The evangelism class. <laughs> and I'd always ask them, why do you hate that class so much? And the answer was because I have to share my faith with one unbeliever during the semester. I didn't come to seminary for that. Well, from my point of view, doing it one time in your seminary career, sharing your faith with somebody who's an unbeliever one time and writing a verbatim of what you did and having some teacher go over it with you, that's hardly training people in evangelism. Right. And man, do we need training in evangelism today? Yeah. I mean, does the evangelical church, does the PCA need its leaders to be on fire? I mean, on fire evangelistically. Well, to do that, you've got to baptize it into evangelism and a baptism of fire that has to burn in the hearts of their mentors, professors, and it has to burn in their lives so that by the time they finish a three-year career in a theological education, they are evangelists through right. and through, ready to do it from the day one, never afraid, never hesitant, never knowing what not to say or how not to say this, or they, they know what to do. And that right. only happens through mentoring and through the hard knocks of actually doing it. That's just one small example. So what did, what did you say when folks said they, they didn't come to seminary to, to learn evangelism? I just shook my head. I said, I don't know what to say. You know, because evangelism and learning how to pray is, in your seminary career, was there a required course on prayer? A required no. course? No. No. It's not. What? And we're training ministers of prayer and the word, and <laughs> we don't have one required course on prayer? People go to seminary and graduate from seminary and go into ministry, and they've never spent one day of their lives fasting and praying. Not one day. But yeah, I, I was going to, I was going to, you know, quip and say, but Richard, they can figure that out on the field, which is, I mean, unfortunately, that is kind of the implicit, right? Right. That, and 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 I know, and you know that. That, that's a hard one to try to learn on the field. Sure is. If you haven't become a praying person by the time you get into the pulpit, it's very unlikely that you'll ever become that mm. because pastoral ministry is extremely busy and it crowds out those things so that you end up being like most of your lay people in your church where you remember to pray as you're putting your head on your pillow at right. night. And that just must not be. Uh, we have got to revolutionize the emphasis of the time that we spend in training our leaders, not diminishing how much they learn academically, but finding more effective and efficient ways of doing that data transfer. The PCA Retirement and Benefits, known as RBI, has full-time financial representatives to help you navigate your financial future. Our financial planning representatives have served on staff in local churches. They know the issues ministry leaders face. Whether you have questions about your compensation, benefits, or retirement planning, they are here to serve you. Visit PCARBI.org and schedule a consultation today with one of our financial planners who can help you find the answers you need. That's PCARBI.org. So when you think about the more effective and efficient um, data transfer, what are some of the things I think that you all are doing at, at Third Mill and things that you've learned that work? Um, and, and you guys have been doing this for decades. You know, it's interesting. Here we are in, uh, in the midst of, of the pandemic uh, as we're making this recording and, and everybody 
in the church, not just in North America, but globally is trying to figure out how do we, how do we communicate content uh, virtually? How do we train? You know, I mean, it's only going to come a matter of time before our PCA churches are going, okay, how do we, how do we nominate and then train our, our, you know, officers, because we need new elders, we need new deacons, we need new, you know, deacon assistants, or, you know, we, we how, how are we going to do this? Yes. Um, yes. And I know that you all have been, I mean, you guys have been doing in one sense virtual, you know, yes. uh, training. What are some of the things that you've, you all have found to be really effective and efficient, you know, in, yeah. in this? That's great. That's a great question. And we have worked hard at this and I don't consider myself a real expert in this, but I have worked hard at it along with a great team of people at Third Mill for decades, as you say. This is our 23rd year. We just celebrated our 23rd anniversary. And so it's, um, it's a very meaningful thing to me because what I'm committed to doing is maintaining the amount and the level of information that we would be comfortable with our pastors knowing uh, mm. coming out of our seminaries but making it possible for Bible schools and seminaries and even, as I said, local church um, theological training, which is popping up all over the place, um, and even groups of local churches that where there's not a seminary or even distance ed by seminaries and others, um, for them to maintain that amount of information, but at the same time be able to turn their eyes toward the more ministry skills and personal development of students too. And I think one of the ways you can do that is by using the new printing press. So let me just give this, let me give it to you this way. Um, every theological professor knows that this is true. You can't say very much in your lectures, so you rely on your students reading textbooks. And you expect them to get a lot more information from the textbooks than they get from your lectures. Your lectures are really more or less sort of sophisticated sermons that you give. Uh, academic right. sort of tidbits, right. tidbits here and there. If they relied for the information primarily on your lectures, they'd hardly have anything to tell you the truth. And um, try it out sometime and see how little info is given in a typical right. recorded lecture. Um, and so we've already, we learned that during the Renaissance and during the Reformation, that the printed page can really assist the theological education of church leaders which is why you probably have walls in your house filled with books. I do. Okay, I do and, too. And, actually, and boxes of books. Actually, my, yeah, exactly, exactly, and in boxes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, that's my point. Um, but uh, no, actually, my wife made me get rid of all my books and put them in the Third Mill office, so all the walls of Third Mill are lined with my library, which I never <laughs> use anymore, by the way, because the whole library is on my computer now. But in all events, which is incredible. That's incredible yeah, to me. It's a wonderful thing. Um, it's not as if somehow we don't need, and we know this already, that teachers don't need additional materials. Okay. We know that that's true. Me, other media to use other than just speaking in front of a group. Now, I am a firm believer that if it's at all possible, you should not try to do that theological side of, of training for church leadership alone. You should do it in community. You should do it with a mentor. And it should be done with live human beings talking with you, getting to know you, 
helping you apply the lessons that you learn, those kinds of things. I believe that very firmly. Third Mill has been accused in the past of wanting to replace teachers with videos. Well, that's the last thing we want to do. Right. What we want to do is equip teachers to do the other things rather than spending their time on just basic information. And so um, what we've well, done and in a con in in in, um, in, a, in a tradition that historically, I think, has fallen on the side of emphasis on the information transfer. Yeah. It, it could feel like you're trying to do what we only we have done. Right. I mean, yeah. our emphasis and if you're and by coming. Yes. Pardon. If you're a teacher. Absolutely. Right. Versus realizing, oh, no, no, actually, we're not trying to we're, we're actually trying to then free you give you space to do this other part that That's only a human being can do. That's the idea, exactly. And we've already done that a little bit with books, a lot with books actually. Now we have a new printing press, okay? Call it the internet, call it digital communication, whatever you wanna call it, because I don't wanna get stuck on the internet alone because right. most church leaders in the world don't have access to the internet. Uh -huh. How's that for a thought? But um, <laughs> so you can't just rely on the internet. But we do have a new printing press, and this new printing press is digital. It's multimedia. It's not just one medium of, of text, but it right. also involves things that sort of simulate and um, activities and involvement and can, can communicate a lot of information in relatively little time and effectively. That By that, I mean memorably. And we've actually tested this. There are other groups that have tested this as well. So a lot of good scientific data on this indicating that what I'm saying about its efficiency and its efficacious quality is true scientifically um, to use multimedia engagement with students. But also we've done our own testing. For example, we tested in China, this is about 10 years ago, um, students, pastor students who had had fifth grade educations and, com and compared that with a test that we gave to um, students that had PhDs in Beijing. And uh, they watched the same lessons from third mill. They took the same quizzes. I thought that the distance between those two groups would be 60 or 70, maybe 80 points difference on average. The average difference was seven and a half points of recollection. Wow. Between a fifth grade person and a PhD. And the reason is because of how effective a good mediated curriculum can be. Huh. I mean, it's unbelievable how effective and memorable it is. And, um, and I just want to encourage anybody that doesn't know that we're not talking about, if you don't know anything about third mill, we're not talking about videos of a talking head, right? Uh, the, the talking head is dead and nobody wants to watch uh, an old fat man like me talking on a video. What right. they want to do is they want to be engaged. And especially the younger they are, the more they are into this and they, they've learned this way their whole lives, which is what universities are learning, of course, now. In fact, right now, you know, with the new COVID emphasis on distance ed, distance ed is kind of getting a, a bad rep here. Uh, because, but let me just encourage everybody to remember that when our public schools and our private schools and even seminaries shifted over to mediated curriculum, online learning, um, they, they, they figured out how, what they were going to do in about five days. Right. Okay? right. They didn't prepare for it. They hadn't thought about it educationally. They had not really pushed very hard. You mentioned Donald Guthrie. Well, Donald Guthrie, who leads uh, Christian education up in, up in Chicago now, as you know, at Trinity, right. uh, he just loves Third Mill because he thinks what we're doing is just so crazy effective in the way we've created our 
video materials, interactive right. uh, multimedia in the sense of graphics and uh, lots of pictures and graphs and 3D animations and B-rolls. We even have music in our lessons. And this is one thing that's very interesting, As and I know this is a hard thing to believe, but we know that this is true. We've proven it over and over again. One hour of third mill curriculum, uh -huh. one hour, is equal to the amount of content you get in a normal lecture of two and a half to three hours. Really? Yes. Now, our curriculum still meets the contact hours requirements for ATS, the Accrediting Association, and for eight in the United States and ATA, Asian Theological Association. In other words, we have as many hours as you would get in a normal seminary program. Right. But that means we're dishing out two and a half to three times the amount of information that you get from lectures in a traditional seminary. Man. Yeah. That's, that's wonderful. And it's because it's easy. It's easy to get. I remember some of, some of the listeners will have read Hermann Ritterboss's Paul, Outline of Paul's Theology, which is mm -hmm. a fantastic book. Everybody in the universe should have read it a dozen times. But I can always remember that there was one chapter where the students would read it three, four, five times when I was a professor, and they still didn't understand it. And they just read it and read it and read it and read it. Then they watched a 35-second uh, clip of third mill animation of what Ritterboss was saying, and they got it. Really? Yeah, in about 35 seconds. Oh, that's what that chapter was about? Yeah, that's what it was about. And so, so how, go ahead. how have you all, I mean, how have you all gone about developing that kind of curriculum? Well, we have a wonderful writing team, about eight people. We have um, over 730 faculty people that appear in our videos from all over the world. 730 faculty people who give interviews many like from our kinds of seminaries and other kinds yeah. of seminaries too. And we just worked very hard on the theoretical side some 20 years ago, and we've improved over the last 20 years, no doubt. Um, but we, yeah, we just pioneered it by God's mercy. We didn't make any huge mistakes. <laughs> There's a whole science of what's called not pedagogy, but andragogy. And andragogy is adult learning science. Uh huh. And uh, you can just Google it. You can find all kinds of materials out there. What's effective for adult learners? What's efficient for adult learners? How do you create? This is what Donald Guthrie's into is andragogy. Absolutely. And, uh, but unfortunately, many of our schools still teach pedagogically. In mm. other words, as if you're a child. Right. Rather than andragogically. And so I think that's sort of more or less the theoretical key to what Third Mill has done. Well, you know, I'm in the process right now of finishing up Made to Stick by the Heath, you know, Chip and Dan Heath. And, yeah. you know, a lot of this is the same kind of stuff that they talk about. And, and how do you make uh, something stick? And, you know, it's, what's fascinating is how in education in particular, we almost do every, if there is a positive principle, we have historically done the negative. <laughs> That's right, exactly. I mean, we know about the biology now, the neurobiology of what makes something sticky. Right. Okay, but we don't teach our teachers how to capitalize on that. Right. And you can do it. It's not that hard. And um, because I can guarantee you the things you remember from class, uh, from how long has it been now? 25 years 20, since you've yeah, been in 25 class? years, yeah. 25 years. I, can, I bet you you remember certain points in classes where you go, yeah, I just can't get it out of my head. And there yes. are biological reasons for that. And you can, um, unfortunately, all the other time you spent in class, they weren't doing those things. 
that, right. uh, that stimulated your brain the way it did and your right. heart the way it did. Yeah. Man. So, I mean, in that sense, I think it sounds like one of the things that you would encourage, particularly is, I think is you made the point, you know, because of the pandemic, everybody's kind of gone virtual or digital and, you know, I've read a, a, a good bit just about how there's a difference between what we did this spring with, you know, in the spring of 2020 and what virtual learning, right? I mean, there's virtual education and learning that, that is far more robust and thought right. through. Yeah, what than, it could be. There's right. a big difference between what we've done and what we right. could do. Right. Excuse so how, what, what would you, you know, if you were sitting down and, and folks from uh, seminary were asking, what are some, what are two things we could be doing in the next year to improve our, uh, our virtual education um, vehicles? Well, um, I think that schools really have a choice. It's a hard choice to make. Um, one, one choice that they can make is for a quality dist for a quality mediated curriculum. That's our language, oh, mediated right. as opposed to immediate in the classroom, right. a mediated curriculum, a quality one that, that follows the kinds of principles we're talking about here and implements them. You have one choice and that is to make it yourself. Now that is a route that some schools try and they do. Some of them do a decent job. I think Liberty, for example, Liberty University has done a really good job. Now, they've been doing it for 35 years, but nevertheless, they've done a decent job of it. But what schools need to understand is, is, it, is that it's, it is extremely expensive to do, extremely expensive to do well, extremely expensive. So you ask me, well, how much money has Third Mill spent on its, its two-year seminary curriculum in 22 languages? The answer is about $54 million. Wow. So it's not a cheap thing to do right. if you do it on your own. The other choice that schools, traditional schools have, is to um, have, like they use books, they share curriculum. In other right. words, you find a, like you find a publisher who provides you with a book, it becomes part of your curriculum. Well, you can find distance educational materials that are out there, and you share that. It's, it's more or less like sharing a book, and that's right. really cheap to do. And in fact, with Third Mill, uh, we know how to take our curriculum and turn it into another school's, uh, like a bona fide traditional school, um, their curriculum by featuring their professors, by letting their professors give their views on things, da 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 da, da all those kinds of things. We, we do this all the time, all over the world, all over the world. Wow. Yeah. So those are the choices. Either you share curriculum or you buy from some curriculum provider third party, or you do it yourself. And unfortunately, a lot of our schools are just sort of limping along on a rich, very restricted budget. And so they do the best they can and God bless them for doing, because something is better than nothing, I think. Right. But right. at the same time, you have to do that. But then the next thing you have to do is figure out what I call um, the, um, the community experience. Um, a lot of us feel like virtual learning, like what you and I are doing right now. Um, this is not a straight up podcast. We're actually looking at each other on Zoom. That's right. Okay, That's so right. we're having a virtual experience here. Well, we're not, it's not very, um, I mean, it's just, we're just sort of talking. So it's a conversation, right. no big deal. But there are ways in which you can take something that we would normally think is less real than us, you and me sitting in a room and we and talking to each other. And we can actually turn this into a hyper real experience. 
I love the term hyper real. It's uh, I can give you the background <laughs> of it at some point, but the um, is a sort of philosophical French um, term. But um, but the hyper real means that the virtual can actually become more impactful, more real than face to face. And if you don't believe that, then notice how many young teenage girls end up self-harming because of what's said on social media about them. Right. Social media become, can become hyper real. People say things and do things by virtual communication that they would never say face to face. Right. And they receive right. things in ways that they would never, never receive them face to face. So it's a, it's a fascinating thing because what Third Mill encourages, the, we have about 12, 10 to 12 different seminaries around the world that have actual MA programs, accredited, full accredited MA programs using us. And we always encourage them that they need to turn their Zoom lessons or their time on campus or their time, if any kind, even telephone communication into right. virtual, um, this virtual stuff into hyper real. And uh, we have ways of teaching people to do that. So it's an absolutely wonderful thing. You see, we don't believe that the human-to-human contact needs to be less. We think it needs to be more. Right. So how, what would be an example of how you would help somebody turn something into to hyper real? Yeah. Isn't that fascinating? Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, the first well, thing yeah, you I mean, do, obviously part, you know, Stephen S doc here at, at, uh, CDM and, and myself are, are doing some co-teaching for RTS here in Atlanta. And, and, you know, you, as we're having this conversation, I'm like, yeah, one of the frustrations I had in the fall and the spring was being online and, and doing all of our classes, you know, like we had to, via zoom and, and, uh, and you know, the, the reason I was excited about teaching was that I'd be with the students it's and we'd have those, yeah. you know, you have the opportunity to, to, you know, even on a limited scale, but have that mentoring interaction. And so, so what would be some ways that you would, you know, an example of how you could help somebody yeah. make something hyper real? Well, let me give you an, an example of, of anecdotal experience that I've had. These, these schools that, that use third mill curriculum often mm-hmm. will invite me to make sort of like a, a guest appearance in a, on a Zoom meeting or some kind of mediated format where you right. have, have the students in a little room where you're talking with them and they're talking to you, a little electronic room. And um, so here's, here's a good example of this. I was in a class, I won't mention the school, but it's an MA program in a university, a fully accredited American university that uses third mill and offers a Bible degree, an MA degree. Well, practically nothing, by the way. So it's cheap. That's another thing about distance education. You can make it cheap. Um, right. Unlike Harvard and Yale, however, that's keeping it at the same price. Um, but okay, so I come in and just like today, I'm looking at you. And if I happen to forget your name, because I'm an old man, and I might forget your name, your name is staring me right in the face. Okay, right. it's right there in front of me. I'll never forget that you're Ed. Right. You with me? Okay. Well, all right. So I'm, I'm talking to these students and I have two hours with them. Well, there's, there are two from Singapore, three from Georgia, two from Alabama, one from Mississippi, one from Maine, one, two, uh, two guys from India, and two young ladies from um, Kampala, Uganda, Uganda. Okay. Now, of those, of those people, um, who would have been shrinking in a real physical classroom, okay? Uh, the two young ladies, because I've, I've seen this for 23 years in my life, the two young ladies from Uganda would have sat in the back of the room and they would have shrunk down in their chairs and they would have remained very quiet because they would have been afraid that all these guys that have been trained in universities in America 
and in Asia and Singaporeans and all these other people, all right. these Canadians and the like that were in the classroom <laughs> with them, that they would have that they would have been embarrassed to have said anything. Right. But in this virtual class, we made it so hyper real by me interacting with every single person, not allowing them to sit there and be quiet. Mm. Hey, there's no place to hide when you're on virtual. Right. During a Zoom meeting, there's no place to hide. And me using multimedia right in the virtual right in the virtual class. In other words, I've got PowerPoints, I've got video clips and all these kinds of things, but I'm also poking at every one of them. And so I poke a couple of times at the Ugandan women. And before 10 minutes is up, they're running the class. I mean, they're running the class because wow. nobody else in the room, when I remember the kinds of people we had, right. uh, Alabama, Georgia, Singapore, Canada, Maine, okay? Right. Um, they, they, they're saying things like, did that really happen? I can't believe that that's, is that really what happens in Uganda? And of course, these young ladies are able to say yes, and they're able to be very proud and vigorously defending what's going on in their churches relative to the classroom experience. Right. So the teachers have to know how to use something like this. Like I would never do in a classroom what you and I have been doing, right. just talking back and forth. But if we had 10 people, even up to 20 people or so, um, I can make them talk to each other. Also, I guess you know that certain software packages can break groups into small groups. Do you know that? Yep. So I've seen it done by our Chinese director. Where he has over 100 students in a class on Zoom. Okay, he breaks them into small groups. They go out and they do a little project and they come back and report. I've Man. seen it with my own eyes. It's the most amazing thing in the world. And he's very good at joking with them, at engaging them, finding out who they are, remembering who they are, because he has right. somebody taking notes on what their experiences are, things like that, things that are easy to forget in a classroom because you're staring down at your notes and you're worried right. about getting the content across. Well, see, when you're doing, when you've got third mill curriculum, that is the mediated information and you're bringing them together in a virtual setting like you and I are experiencing right now. I, my goal is not primarily to review that information. They've already right. taken tests. They've already been tested and they've proven that they know the information. What I want to know is how are you going to use it? What difference does it make in your life? And I want the Ugandan women talking about what it means in their lives so that the guys over in Canada can go, I've never thought about that my whole life. Yeah, you never <laughs> thought about it, did you? Okay, and then, you know, talk to the Singaporean woman and saying, you know, what do you think about this? Now, Singapore is so different from this. How's that going to work for you? So on and so forth. So that would be an example of a real life setting where that happens. Okay. Uh, that's, that's, that's wonderful. And uh, I think um, timely advice, for, you know, from lessons learned for you, uh, for, the, for everybody in this and season. Could I, could I, uh, I don't know how our time is going, but if I could add this, one of the things that I think probably in our busy culture is going to carry over is um, into the church life is that a lot of the sort of educational effort that we have, especially for things like training officers for the mm -hmm. church, right? Um, that is good to get them to read a book or two, but having them read 10, 15 books is not going to carry through the way having them engage a good andragogically sound video curriculum would engage them. Right. That's been proven over and over again. But what you can do is you can use your time either physically with them or virtually with them like now. Um, you can use that to talk to them about what difference it makes. So, for example, Third Mill has this course on the Apostles' Creed. 
And when, when pastors ask me, well, what part of this do you think my lay elders ought to do? I said, well, one of them ought to be the Apostles' Creed, because you want to make sure everybody that you're training to be an elder or a deacon affirms Believes. the Apostles' Creed, don't you? That's right. That's okay? right. I mean, that'd be for like a minimum. And, um, <laughs> and so they do it, but then they then, but rather than going over it again, like you would in a typical Sunday school class where people read the book and can't remember what the book said. Right. Okay. So you have to just review what the book said. That's right. But instead, what you do is you talk about things like, okay, we believe that Jesus is the son of God. Do we also believe that Jesus is a man? Well, yes, born of the Virgin Mary. Okay. We say, well, why is that important? Why is it? Why do you believe, John, why do you believe it is important for Jesus to have been fully human? Well, our pastors would be shocked to know how few of our elders candidates even believe that, much less can express why right. that's important. Oh, that's great. So you, you catch it and you can make it a hyper real experience for them. Man. Well, and I think that's that's such good stuff, particularly in this season, because I do think more and more of our churches are going to have to figure out how to do this stuff online. I think so. I don't think this is the last pandemic we're going to face, by the way. With that, we're going to take a quick break and we'll come right back and uh, we'll, we'll want to hear more about that. So uh, stay tuned. Thanks for listening to the PCA Church Leader Podcast. Thanks also to RBI for sponsoring the show. You can find past episodes of the show available on iTunes. And if you like the show, please make sure to leave us a review. It helps us to know how to make the show better how to better serve you. We'll be back next week with more from Richard Pratt. Thanks for being with us. I'm Ed Dunnington, and we'll talk with you next time.